From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Anna Bernasek. Hi, and welcome to Forward Thinking. I'm Michael Chewy. And I'm Anna Bernasek. We've got a fun episode today because we're talking to one of America's favorite economists, at least according to other economists. Hold on, hold on. That sounds really geeky to me, Michael. I hope you're going to translate for the rest of us. There won't be any translation required. Our listeners will be able to get this immediately. Daron Asamoglu is a professor of economics at MIT, and he's one of the most widely cited economists working today. Okay, that's right. I know his expertise is in growth, technological change, and also the consequences of that on things like inequality. Plus, he's really into understanding the impact of AI and automation, which I know is why you're really excited, Michael, because that's one of your areas, right? Well, we have done a lot of work in this area. In fact, MGI has published a report on the future of work after COVID-19, and we found that over 100 million more people could have to change jobs over the coming years. But Duran's work on the impacts of labor is only one of the areas for which he's known. He has also done some very influential writing on political economy. Wow, right? Those two topics are really of the moment. So let's go to the interview and hear more. Daron, thanks for joining us uh, and I appreciate it. So uh, why don't we get started? I'd love to start with just a little bit about your own personal journey. You know, where did you grow up? How did you go from, you know, where you were to now becoming an institute professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology? I uh, was born in Istanbul, Turkey, and I grew up in Istanbul until the age of 19 when I moved to the UK to study. And uh, my interest in economics and also politics took shape when I was in Turkey. And in fact, many of the questions that I later came to study, such as democracy, relationship between political institutions and economic growth and dictatorship repression, those were things that, you know, I started wondering when I was a teenager, especially growing up in a country that had recently suffered a military coup and was economically on the doldrums, inequality was rising. So those were the questions that I thought I would go and study in economics. Little did I know that that's not what economics studied. But when I went to enroll at the University of York, I still liked what I saw. So I got into it. But then a number of years later, when I was towards the end of my PhD dissertation, sort of the same passions came back. And now I felt I could take a little bit of time off from other more conventional topics, unemployment, human capital, and so on. But over time, I think my two interests have merged. You know, moving forward, I believe that the political economy of growth, how we make it happen, what sort of institutions we have to have in order to undergird growth, who benefits from growth, how you regulate growth, and technology, automation, AI, the direction of technological change, those are intimately connected. So those are the two legs of my research that have, you know, in recent years come even more together than they were before. And certainly things have worked out well. Uh, Amongst other things, uh, you have a John Bates Clark Medal, which has been a reasonable predictor of a Nobel Prize in, in, in some cases. Do you ever think about that? Nah. 
You've published hundreds of papers. If you go to Google Scholar, I think there are like 37,000 different uh, results that come up. And then you were also ranked third behind Paul Krugman and uh, Greg Minku uh, in the list of favorite living economists under age 60 by other economists. Uh, which of these was your favorite award? Oh, uh, I think I think my favorite award is, uh, is probably the BBVA award I received a couple of years ago because I think it's a very serious award and they have an amazing sort of uh, list of recipients in the past and also very, very good selection committee. And I'm not saying that just because they gave it to me. I mean, that would make it. But uh, but they are objectively some of the best economists and they do it very seriously. And uh, so I was very gratified and honored. But all of them are, of course. They're like... My babies, I love them all. Why don't we start on one of the legs of your research stool that you mentioned? And, and that's, that's how I, you know, that was my entree into your work. So at the McKinsey Global Institute, we also have been studying AI automation, you know, the future of work, productivity, and those sorts of things. And you and I have both been involved in the uh, partnership on AI for people in society. You do have an extensive body of work, of course, that, uh, you know, many have reviewed, you know, along with uh, Pasquale Restrepo, you know, co-authored with David Otter and others. How did you get into it? Were you thinking about robots when you were a kid, for instance? No, I wasn't. On that one, I wasn't. Essentially, the way I got into it was that very early on in my career, about 25 years ago, I started working on what I sometimes call directed technological change issue, which is that you know technology is not a sort of scientific process that has a preordained path, but its exact direction, which types of technologies we go after, who benefits from it, which gambles we take, which products we aspire to, all of those are choices. So the direction of technological change is something we determine socially and economically. And I sort of worked quite a bit on that, both theoretically and also in the context of inequality, for example, uh, what makes technology more skill-biased and what makes technology more favorable to capital versus labor. And I think those models and, and, and insights uh, I'm still very keen on. But at some point, I also started noticing, realizing that uh, thinking of the direction of technological change within the context of the most common approaches in economics, which is that technology just increases the productivity of some factors, and therefore its inequality consequences will come, depending on whether it increases the productivity of capital or labor, or skilled labor or unskilled labor, agriculture versus industry. You know, those are useful, but they don't do justice both the, to the nature of technology and to its more sweeping distributional effects. And, and in particular, what was missing from this framework is exactly what you know you would you would think of as automation which is the possibility that new technologies work not by increasing the productivity of certain factors of production but they replace them in the production process think of for instance the spinning or the weaving machines of the early industrial revolution in britain replacing skilled artisans the implications of this 
both for inequality and for how we should think of the determinants of technological progress turn out to be quite fundamental. And then once I started thinking about these issues, then robots, AI, etc., immediately fell into place because, you know, of course, it's really interesting to uh, wax lyrically about the British Industrial Revolution, but that was in the past, whereas robots, uh, numerically controlled machinery, AI, algorithms, they are our present and the future. So that's how the uh, my sort of entry into the area of robots at the at the end of the 2000s, early 2010, took place, and and then a large part of the work I have done in this area can be thought of both as a corrective and as a as a as an effort to develop a new framework. The corrective part is because, as I have just tried to articulate, I think there was something unsatisfactory. There is something unsatisfactory and perhaps even misleading about the ways that we have thought of technology as economists. And that was the corrective part. And then the framework is, you know, it base beats a framework to, uh, it takes a framework to beat a framework. So we need to come up with something that's workable, that has predictions, that shows you how things work and has testable implications so that you can actually look at data, confronted with data. And those are the efforts that I have been involved in uh, over the last uh, 12 years or so. So can you state simply what was wrong about the way that economists thought about technology? Well, I think there are three interrelated things about it. One is actually it's descriptive realism. I think it matters quite a bit that what we describe has a clear counterpart in the data. So many economists still subscribe to the point of view, methodological point of view that Friedman articulated about almost 70 years ago now, where he said, realism of assumptions don't matter. You have to just look at predictions. His favorite example was, you know, I can model a billiard billiard player by thinking he's calculating all the angles. That's not realistic. That's not what he's doing. But if I get good predictions about where he's going to hit the white ball, that's fine. You know, I think there's something attractive about that methodology, but I think it's also very limiting. And a good, rich model has to have close connection with the data. And if you look at the way that economists think about technology, it's this latent variable that makes you just more productive. But very few technologies actually do that. Electricity didn't make workers more productive. It made some functions in factories more feasible and some few items more productive. A hammer doesn't make you more productive in everything. It makes you just more productive in one single simple task, hammering a nail. And a very, very many technologies don't even do that. So the examples of spinning and weaving machinery that I gave or the factory system or more recently, databases, software, robots, numerically controlled machines, they are mostly about replacing workers in certain tasks that they used to perform. But the second is that the problem of what technology does to wages is very much 
entangled with this notion. If technology is just like this latent variable that makes you more productive, it will help you. At the end of the day, you're becoming more productive. Of course, we can come up with scenarios in which things are so topsy-turvy that you become more productive, but at the end, it doesn't help you all that much. But essentially, it's a very robust prediction that the classic economist way of thinking about it, where technology is an augmenting factor, tends to benefit workers. It may benefit some workers more than others. It may well be that computers augment educated workers more than high school dropouts. So inequality can increase. But at the end, you shouldn't see the high school dropouts lose out. Their real wages shouldn't decline. And the real wages of workers shouldn't decline. But in fact, one of the striking but very robust features of the last 40 years of economic developments in the US and the UK has been that many groups, especially low education or middle education men, have actually seen their earnings fall. Some groups by as much as 25% in real terms since 1980. Phenomenal. This isn't the American dream. So in the traditional economics approach, this is a uh, nuisance that we often sweep under the carpet. So we look at relative wages so that the decline in the absolute wage level of some groups is sort of hidden. But it is something that doesn't really fit into this technology as augmenting framework. But when technology, at least in part, is about automation, replacing, displacing workers from their tasks, then this happens quite often. You can have productivity improvements, capital benefits, firms benefit, but workers, especially some types of workers, but all workers overall can lose out in real terms. And then third, once you go to this micro level, then the direction of technology, the future of technology looked at through the perspective of what type of technologies we're going to build on, that becomes much richer and much more interesting. So it's not just whether we're going to increase the productivity of skilled workers versus unskilled workers, both of which benefit all of them since they are complementary. It's more like, are we going to completely give up on unskilled workers? Are we going to try to replace them? Are we going to try to replace humans? Are we going to create new tasks for humans? How are you going to use the AI platform? So all of these questions about the direction of technology become much more alive, and they're also their productivity implications become much more interesting. Let's take the second of those. I'm very interested in this idea that, uh, or the question. Um, you know, people have have uh, criticized technological determinism, right? That we know what will happen. Um, but let me probe with you. The link between technology and inequality or depressed worker wages of certain workers, is that a causal relationship that you could say you could predict? Yes, it is a causal relationship in the sense that I can say with some degree of certainty about what caused the huge increase in inequality in the U.S. labor market over the last four decades, and technology is at the forefront of that. But no, it's not a preordained deterministic relationship whatsoever. Technologies played a very different role. I mean, if you look at the macro facts, it actually screams at you. It's pretty clear. Look at economic growth in the 1950s, 60s, early 70s. It was very rapid. But it was also very shared. If you look at the real wages of different demographic groups, men, women, high education men, low education men, college graduates, postgraduates, and plot them on a graph, they're all on top of each other. 
everybody is experiencing this real wage growth about two between two and two and a half percent in real terms per annum. It's remarkable. And then you come to the 1980s and a completely different picture. First of all, median wages are essentially flat. Real wage growth in the U.S., especially for men, but overall else has stopped. Second, the top and the bottom are coming apart. Huge amount of inequality is opening. Definitely not shared. But third, as I said a second ago, it's not that the top is going ahead and the bottom is not keeping up with it. The bottom is actually falling. So that those patterns, you know, what caused them? Of course, many things might have caused them. It may well be that low education workers became less skilled. It may well be that it's globalization. It may well be that it's because of the minimum wage, which has you know fallen in real terms by about 35% since the 1970s, or collective bargaining has come to an end. Several of these things do play some role. But my own research claims, and hopefully shows, that technology is at the forefront. The reason why, in the 50s and the 60s and early 70s, we had this shared prosperity is because we did have quite a bit of automation. It's not that there wasn't automation, but automation was counterbalanced by other technological changes, especially these new tasks. And for every sector that had a significant decline in labor share because they were automating a lot, there were some new sectors that were coming up and demanding more labor and paying more to labor. And it was this counterbalancing nature of different types of technologies that create the balanced progress. And then you look at the 1980s, completely different picture. What you see is that automation picks up speed, but even more remarkable is all those countervailing types of technologies are absent. So with that being the case, what is the hope for the future here? Do we need to unlock the creation of new industries? Well, I, I think we need to uh, we need to do a little bit more diagnosis before we can answer that question. So the diagnosis is about exactly what is happening, of which we talked about one part, and I want to talk about one other part of it, and, ex- and then second, why it's happening, and that will give us some clues. I think we talked about automation. There is a lot of automation. But one thing we did not mention is that even if we automated a lot and did nothing else, there's one condition under which that would not be disastrous for workers. For example, it wouldn't translate into real wage declines. And it is when that automation is actually very highly productive. So automation needs to be counterbalanced by these new tasks. That's the simplest way of thinking about the problem. But automation by itself creates two forces as well. One is the displacement. I'm getting rid of my blue-collar workers in many of the tasks. But if at the same time I increase my productivity so much or reduce my cost so much that I expand my production, I hire back those workers to do the other remaining tasks. So essentially what we are seeing in the U.S. and some other economies as well, that it's not only that automation is not being counterbalanced, but it's actually not sufficiently productive. And it's not generating the additional labor demand that would come from the productivity effect. And it's not 
a surprise to people who have looked at national income accounts because the last two and a half decades, almost three decades, have been some of the slowest productivity growth in the U.S. history. Unquestionably, the slowdown in productivity growth has been an issue, but others have also noted a decoupling between productivity growth and wage growth as well. Are you just you know, the the uh, are you ex- explaining that or is that yes, also yes. something? Yes, yes. So where, I, I, because... I, I, I'm 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 talking about two things, and it's it's sometimes a little bit uh, less complex. So essentially, there there are two separate issues here. One is the productivity growth is slowing down. And that everything else equal, that's going to be really bad for labor. And second, automation by this displacement effect always creates a wedge between productivity and wages. Or a different way of thinking about that is that automation, again, this is the framework, my framework that I'm sort of peddling. So uh, it's not true in the standard framework, it's a little bit. It works somewhat differently. But automation always reduces the labor share. So always creates this wedge between productivity and wage growth. So if productivity is very high, you can have that wedge, but wages might still increase. But then if you have productivity growth and a lot of automation, productivity growth slowing down and a lot of automation, it's a double whammy. And that's what's that's what's really problematic. So you said we need to diagnose before the solution, but what what is the solution? Yes. So this this was part of the diagnosis, because now let me come back to the two broad theories that you can have, and then this 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 last fact will help us perhaps at least change our posteriors a little bit on those. One is we are going through like a singularity abundance type of moment. We have worked out a way of producing more machines with machines, ultimately culminating to something like singularity or superintelligence, but it doesn't need to even need to go there. Even if it just accelerates, but it doesn't take us to superintelligence, you can have that. We're going to have a lot of automation because we've worked out how to do machines with machines and more efficient, more and more efficient machines of that sort. And that's what's leading to this imbalance between more pro-labor technologies and more automation. But if that was the broad explanation, you should also see a lot of productivity growth because it's working through new opportunities for doing much better with machines. What's an example of a pro-labor technology? The new tasks that I was talking about. So in the context of, you know, for instance, mechanization of agriculture, you know, where did all these workers who are displaced from the agricultural sector, which made up about 50% of employment in the U.S. Uh, towards the second half of the 19th century, where did they go? But they didn't go back to agriculture to do other tasks. And they didn't just go and do exactly the same things that their parents did. Instead, during the same time, you see this complete transformation of both the uh, service and the manufacturing sector in the U.S. The manufacturing sector is electrifying, is adding all these non-production workers, clerical workers, back office workers, engineers, maintenance workers, doing much better design, much better cost control. And these are the new tasks that are sort of uh, soaking up all of that labor. And the retail sector, education sector, they're also expanding with completely new activities. So those are part of the more pro-labor things. And just let me push on this a little bit, because we've often heard this trope and it comes in different forms, but in 20 years, 60% of the jobs that will exist will be ones you've never heard of. Uh, at And we've tried to uncover that, and it seems like the rate of change in occupations and even 
tasks and activities is quite a bit slower than that. Uh, what what is your research? Scene? Yes, that is that it is. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, we haven't done enough of that. But if you look at the same thing in the, we don't have the same detailed data, but at a more ocular statistics level, at a high level in the 1920s and 30s, it's much faster. Mm, interesting. So so that's right. So we're not, you know, we, we do have many new tasks. It's not like we don't have any, but they are not enough, exactly. So that is that is the imbalance that I'm talking about. Are we just not inventive enough to come up with new tasks? Or do we need, you know, universal basic income because we've, come up, you know, where the, the pace at which... Well, we that brings me to my second explanation. So if it's not that we have this imbalance because we have suddenly found much better ways of doing automation, doing machines, doing algorithms, perhaps it is that we are inefficiently biasing our direction of technology. So you can think that perhaps the possibilities open to us haven't changed. But because of who's making the decisions, incentives, institutions, aspirations, we have gone more and more in an inefficient direction of doing too much automation and not enough of the other things. So let me give you one example. I don't think it's the most important example, but let me give you one example to explain what I mean. Our tax system. So if you look at today, if a company buys a machine to replace workers, it will pay about a 5% tax on that, the spending on that machine. If instead you hire the workers, you'll pay something like 25 to 30% tax. So the U.S. tax system provides an enormous subsidy to firms to buy the machines and replace the workers. Did this subsidy exist before? Yes, but much, much smaller. In the 1990s, the difference was 25% to 15 to 20%. So we are increasingly subsidizing firms to automate. So if you have many incentives like this, and we can talk about what the other ones are, which are softer, perhaps, but are no, no less important, in my opinion, then you're going to go more and more in the direction of automation. You're going to leave lots of low-hanging fruit and those low-hanging fruit might have been very important for that productivity improvement. Well, you made reference to institutions and how they operate. This is probably good to segue into an, another area. You know, you, you and your co-author and, and co-researcher James Robinson you know, wrote this book in 2012, Why Nations Fail. You've talked about political economy as being something that uh, is of deep interest to you. You know, we, obviously we could talk for hours on this and we don't have that long, but... but um, you know, you know, a key distinction you make is between extractive and inclusive institutions. Can you just expound a little bit for folks? People should read the book, but if they haven't read the book yet, can you give them a teaser preview? Yeah. So let me give you one, one, one concrete example rather than give a definition. But, you know, the institutions are essentially rules, political and economic rules. You know, who owns property, how you can contract on it, who can enter into what occupation. But let me give you one simple example. South African economy in the middle of the 20th century under apartheid. You have an economy in which almost all of the firms and assets are controlled by a white minority that makes up about 5 to 6% of the population. The 
90% black population is forced to live in the most unproductive part of the country in very, very crowded and bad circumstances. So all of the good land is taken by the whites. And then they have no public goods, no public services, no education, so they have no chance but supply their labor so cheap to mines or, or, or agricultural estates. But even that is not enough. Actually, uh, the South African government also passes something called the color bar. It says that blacks cannot hold any other occupation than the most menial, the most unskilled. So you cannot be a supervisor, a surveyor, a clerk, an accountant, a bricklayer, you know, anything that is the most, that is, that is, that is beyond the most menial, lowest pay, lowest skill occupation, blacks are completely banned from it. This is what we call an extractive political institution. Extractive economic institutions concentrate economic capabilities in the hands of a small elite. Extractive political institutions concentrate political power in the hands of an elite. And what we argue in the book is that extractive economic institutions bolstered by extractive political institutions are very common. They often lead to high inequality. They may sometimes allow some growth, but it's not sustainable growth, it's not innovation-based growth, and it's not ultimately growth that's going to bring productivity growth and broad-based prosperity. The alternative inclusive institutions that are the opposite, that create these broad-based opportunities, anybody can enter into business or whatever profession they want, but also the means of achieving that, infrastructure, health, education, status, I think those are going to be much more conducive to long-run productivity growth because the experimentation, the innovation, the creative destruction that's necessary for true technological progress is going to be very difficult under an extractive system. So catch-up growth is fine, or if you have a clear competitive advantage such as oil or copper, sure, you can do that. But innovation-based growth, new products, new technologies, new ideas, that's going to be harder. So where does the U.S. fit in? Is it extractive or inclusive? You know, in Why Nations Fail, even if troubled, the U.S. is an example of an inclusive nation. It has active political participation by a large fraction of the population. It has an open system. You cannot ban anybody from becoming an entrepreneur or an engineer. You could in the U.S. South at some point, but not anymore. But here is the problem. If my diagnosis of the first part of our conversation is correct, that we are creating more and more of this automated future, and AI will continue that trend, and especially for workers without specialized skills, programmers, the top lawyers, the top surgeons, okay, perhaps they can escape automation. But then we're going to create a world in which 60, 70, 80% of the population doesn't have much economic value. What they do is either can be done by machines or their price is depressed. They don't have much social status. They will increasingly get alienated from public life and political life. So therefore, in my assessment, Fixing the direction of technology, fixing the direction of AI is, is important, not just for prosperity, but it may actually be important for our democracy as well. And so what would it mean to fix the direction of AI? I think, to me, it has two legs. One is we have to free ourselves from the excessive obsession 
of automation. This is true in the area of AI. It's true in other areas too. I think our current business community, for a variety of reasons, some of it is cost-cutting in, uh, uh, in competition with China. Some of it is because where the technology leaders in Silicon Valley have sort of set the agenda. Some of it is because government policies are just too focused on automating everything. So instead, we have to come back to a world in which we put as much effort in increasing human productivity, both in the tasks that they already produce, but also creating new tasks in entertainment, in healthcare. There are so many new things that we can do, especially with AI, but some of it with just our existing technologies, some of it with virtual, virtual reality or augmented reality. There are many, many things ranging from judgment, social skills, flexibility, creativity, that humans are so much better than machines, but we're not empowering them right now. So that's the first leg. The second leg is that we also have to pull back from using AI as a method of control. And again, that's about how we use the AI technology. Do we use it to empower individuals, to be better communicators, better master of their own choices and data, be able to sort of understand the veracity or reliability of different types of information, or do we develop these tools in the hands of platforms so that the platforms themselves are doing all of that thinking and all of that direction for the individuals? I think that those are two are very different futures as well. That's a great place to leave it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michael. This was great talking to you. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Anna Bernasek. Our producer is Lauren Melling and our audio engineer is Colin Warren. <laughs>